Uh, I'm going to pray for us and then we'll get going with this morning. Um, that'll be good. Yeah, Father. Um, God, we don't just want to listen to a talk. We don't just want to go through another teaching series. We want to be transformed by you and by your word. And God, we, we all of us just soften our hearts now to receive what you're wanting to teach us this morning. Amen. So as I mentioned, we're doing a, a three-week teaching series called Killing Prayer um, in three easy steps. That's the, that's the big idea. Um, not that we want to kill prayer, but that we want to identify there are things that kill prayer, uh, and we want to identify what those things are so that we can learn how to avoid having prayer killed. Um, my clicker's not working, guys. Do you know why that is? No, no, I put new batteries in. Just especially, there we go. Killing prayer in three easy steps. Um, now, all of us are born with a, a desire to pray, whether you're a believer or not. I doubt there'd be anyone who say they go through their life never praying. The saying is often said, there's no such thing as an atheist in the trenches or an atheist on the battleground, and it's true. Uh, whether we know what we're doing or not, there's an inbuilt desire within each of us to pray, to call out to God at different points in our lives. And yet, also, if we're honest, prayer is quite hard. And uh, at times, we're never really sure if we're any good at it or if someone's listening when we pray. Uh, often, I find when I pray, my mind wanders, I ramble, I forget what I wanted to say, I fall asleep sometimes, I lose my train of thought, I wake up in the morning and carry on last night's prayer time that I fell asleep doing. And, uh, and we find ourselves at times going, I know prayer is important to the Christian life, I just wish it was a little bit easier. And uh, if you feel like that at all, the good news is uh, Jesus' disciples felt the same. Um, they asked him, teach us to pray, master, gaffer, guru, teach us to pray. And the reason you'd ask someone to teach you to pray is because you recognize, oh, they know how to do it and I don't. They've got something that I haven't. And Jesus said to them, didn't he, the, the, what we call the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Uh, on earth as it is in heaven your kingdom come I've forgotten it already um, that's good news I'm teaching on prayer this morning um, and I suppose up until recently most kids at school would have grown up being able to recite the Lord's Prayer obviously I wasn't one of those um, but for us as Christians and for us as a church collectively to learn to pray is, is crucial uh, D.L. Moody the famous evangelist once said that um, any great movement of God can be traced back to a kneeling figure and I just feel more and more aware that for us as a church, we can really only grow as wide in our influence as our prayer life is deep. And as we are devoted to God, we can only really achieve or get done as much as we're able to pray about and engage with God about. The Bible says that prayer is powerful. Um, and it says that the prayers of the righteous are powerful. By that, it means if you're a Christian, someone who's been given a right standing by God, when you pray, there's great power in that. And God's able to answer that and use that. In John 15, Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, I will give you. Um, and in James 42, he says, You do not have because you do not ask. Uh, and we also see in, in the life of Jesus, uh, when he heals a boy who's uh, afflicted by uh, a demon and sets him free, he says to his disciples, this kind only comes out through a life of prayer and fasting. The prayer's powerful, prayer's important, and, and many of us would know stories of Christians, whether now or in the past, who have testified to the great power of prayer and its effectiveness. Um, 
Often people talk about a guy called George Muller, who in the, in the Victorian times um, set up a few orphanages in Bristol. And he did so just really by praying and seeing God provide. Uh, he's often told that he sat down with his orphans for dinner without any food or any money in the account to provide food. And they would just pray and say, let's see what the Father's going to do. And there'd be a knock on the door and dinner would be provided. Prayer's powerful. And you hear stories like that and you go, yeah, yeah I get it. I get it. Prayer's powerful. And uh, prayer's also a wonderful privilege. This is a, a quote I came across by uh, Charles Spurgeon, who was a leader of a church in the uh, 19th century. He said this, to pray is to bathe in a cool, swirling stream to escape the summer sun. To pray is to mount on eagle's wings above the clouds and get into clear heaven where God dwells. To pray is to enter the treasure house of God. To pray is to grasp heaven in one's arms, to embrace deity with one's soul, and to feel one's body made a temple of the Holy Spirit. To pray is to cast our burdens, to tear away our rags, to be filled with spiritual vigor, to reach the highest point of Christian health. And we hear things like that and we go, oh, it's wonderful. Or maybe we don't actually. Maybe if we're more honest, we go, Oh, that's depressing. I don't have that experience of prayer. It's all right for for Charles Spurgeon there, but not for me. When I pray, my mind wanders. When I pray, I wonder if anyone's even listening and if there's any point to prayer. Well, the good news is that prayer isn't actually our goal. If you're a Christian, how you pray and growing in prayer isn't actually the goal that we should set ourselves because actually our goal is knowing God. That's the pursuit of the Christian, is to know God more. In the New Testament, it says a few things about this. Uh, In Hebrews 8, talking about what Jesus has done, it says that no more will one man say to another, know the Lord, because they'll all know me now from the least to the greatest. In Philippians 3, Paul said about his past, I count everything else as rubbish compared to knowing Christ. And in John 17, Jesus, when he was praying, says to God, this is eternal life, that they know you. Knowing God is what we were made for. And knowing God is as, different, is, is as different as knowing a recipe is from eating a dinner. If I was to stand here and recite how to make a banoffee pie, you, I would not therefore conclude that you know what a banoffee pie tastes like. You'd have to taste it and feel the fattiness and feel your arteries clogging up with just horribleness. And, but it tastes good. Or it's as different as this. So this is... I don't mean to see this too well, but this is a, a map of the Cookmere Valley. And there's a lot I can learn about the Cookmere Valley from this map. I can learn that uh, it's obviously a very hilly place because of how close the, the contours are together in the, in the hill there. I can learn there's a big river and that there's towns on either side and a road that goes over it. But it doesn't tell me much about it. I can't say that I know the valley and I know its beauty. Uh, for that, a photo might help. I might go, wow, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. But even that falls a long way short from just walking among the Cookmere Valley and experiencing the, the sights and sounds and smells and getting frustrated at the bridge over the, the Golden Galleon or the Cookmere Inn that it's now called. I need to experience that to say that I know it. I've walked its hills and I've listened to its sounds and smelt its smells. And actually getting to know God is more like that because God is a person after all. He's a person to be known When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, so the opening line, our Father in heaven, the big revelation that Jesus came to bring to his his followers about prayer was this, relate to God as a dad. He used the Hebrew word Abba. Uh, My wife's family are are part Hebrew and and live in Israel, and they came over for a a wedding recently. 
Uh, and just hearing their eldest son just shout to their dad across the room, Abba, Abba, Abba. It's a familiar, warm, familial term. Jesus says, use that. Talk to God as a person. But often our struggle isn't, um, isn't because we don't want to get to know God. It's often that we, we try to get good at prayer and remove that from trying to get to know a person, God. And doing that is, is like trying to drive while looking at the windscreen of your car. It's very confusing, and you're only ever going to crash. Um, Paul Miller, who writes this book, he, he describes prayer instead as, as more like a mealtime conversation with friends. Uh, he quotes Revelation 3.20, where it's, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Remember those occasions in your life when you've just had a long evening with friends over dinner, maybe in front of the telly, just ordered a takeaway perhaps. Summer's evening, maybe outside having a barbecue and just whiling away the hours, sitting around chatting, conversing, laughing, joking. You know, remember before kids when you could stay up as late as you wanted and it didn't matter because you could lie in as long as you wanted. Some of you are enjoying that because your kids have left home. I remember those days. But that's, Miller says that's what prayer should be like. It should be a conversation around a mealtime with a friend. And what we learn is that we can't learn about prayer in isolation from the rest of our Christian life. We can't say, well, this is my prayer time. Tick, do that every day, and now get on with the rest of my life. That's not how it works. That would be like going to the gym and only ever working out your left arm. You'd get a strong left arm, but you'd look pretty strange. You walked around kind of, I don't know, you'd be overbalancing and always walking around in circles. So we don't aim, we don't aim to get good at prayer. We aim to get to know God. And the Bible says that God is... It says this, he's a compassionate and gracious God. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. He's a father to the fatherless, a defender to the widows. He sets the lonely in families and he leads out the prisoners with singing. That's the adventure that we're called into. I don't know where you're coming from this morning. You might be a believer of many years. Or you might be someone who's not yet a Christian looking in. You might be someone who feels very far from God and doubting God and just wrestling with all that is going on in your life. That's okay. The adventure that we're called to is this adventure of not getting good at prayer or attending church or reading a Bible. The adventure that we're called to is to know God. It's the highest calling that any man could ever have of themselves and on their lives. So that's where we're going today. And uh, I mentioned, we mentioned we're doing this three-week three series on, uh, called Killing Prayer and Three Easy Steps, really because we're wanting to look at three things that we think kill prayer, uh, religiousness, rebelliousness, and restlessness. But with the nusses on the end, it didn't sound as cool. So just religious, rebellious, and restless, killing prayer in three easy steps. We're going to take each of them over the next three weeks and look at how they have an impact on our prayer life and us getting to know God. Um, what's stopping us getting to know God? Again, killing prayer. So this, this week we're looking at um, the first one, religious. Asking the question, how does religi- religiosity and religion prevent us from really getting to know God and grow in our relationship with him? That's where we're going. I'm going to be reading from Luke's Gospel, which is uh, the third Gospel in the New Testament about the life of Jesus. Luke chapter 18. If you've got your Bible, we want to turn there. If you haven't, that's okay, because I forgot mine this morning, and I'm preaching, so I feel terrible. Um, Don't judge me. It's on the screen. Here we go. Luke 18, 9 to 17. We're going to read this and then share some reflections about religion and prayer and how we can get to know God better. Okay, so this is Jesus teaching on prayer. 
gets to this section, he says this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Oh, thanks. I fast twice a week. I give away 10% of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. That means he went down to his house right with God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them, this Jesus. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to them saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a, like a child shall not enter it. When we use the word religion, um, it generally has a couple of meanings. Religion, to most people in the world, really just means a belief in a superhuman power that's able to help you. Or it's going to church, it's doing certain rituals, that's religion. But for those of us in the church, we often use religion to mean something else. We, we use it to mean legalism. This idea that by my good deeds, by my good efforts, I can somehow impress God or get right with God or earn God's favor by doing good things. The Bible makes it very clear that there is nothing any of us can do to earn any kind of right standing before God. Nothing. Nothing at all. And the converse is true, the opposite is true as well, that there's nothing we don't do that, or we do do sinfully that hinders us from knowing God. That befriending God, coming to God, is always entirely an act of grace. Not wanting to, quote, sting, but every move we make and every breath we take is a result of God's grace. I have just quoted sting. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's what religion is. That's often how it is. See, the, the problem is too bad and God is too good that there's nothing any of us can do to ever get any kind of right standing before him. You could go to church your whole life, read the Bible your whole life, pray your whole life, and it make no difference to your right standing before God. And so in, in church and in the Bible, we, when we talk about religion, we're often using it in that term. And I know that for those of us in the room who are Christians, we go, well, I get that, I get that. I know there's nothing I can do can improve my standing before God. I get that, I get that. But if you're honest, if you're anything like me, religiosity and religious ways of thinking creeps in so easily, so subtly, and it kills prayer. Martin Luther, the 16th century reformer, he said that the default mode of the human heart is towards religion, towards that kind of behavior. We're always needing to be reminded of grace and pulled back to grace because we're always going to be inclined to go towards religion. And if you ever find yourself saying or feeling things like, uh, I can't pray because I, I haven't done enough this week, or I haven't been to church, or I find it hard to pray because I've done some things bad and I, I feel shame when I come to God, or if ever you feel like I'm not worthy, I don't deserve it, I can't do this, or I, I won't do that, or because, I, because I've done, I've done, or I haven't done, I haven't done, that's often an indicator that you're being influenced by this religious mindset. And it creeps in so easily. 
recently, um, I was going to East Grinstead for a, a youth event that I was speaking at, and, um, and I'd set aside the day to fast because I wanted to get to know God more. So I said, I'm not going to eat food today. I'm going to just pray and get to know God more. It's quite a normal thing that Christians do. When we were driving to East Grinstead, the guys in my car, they didn't know this, and they were hungry. So they said, let's stop off at McDonald's. So we did. We stopped off at McDonald's, and, and I ate at McDonald's. Um, and, dry, and it didn't taste very nice. It was fatty and horrible, and it wasn't satisfying. But as a result of my McDonald's, I failed on my decision to say, I'm going to fast today. I'm going to, I'm going to fast. And what happened was, when I was at this event, I was, I was due to speak to some young people, and the whole time we were worshiping God, I was racked with guilt. I was racked with, like, oh, I'm a failure. I can't believe I ate when I told God I wasn't going to eat. What an idiot. What a plonker. In fact, we, I mean, over the past few months, Amy and I have been trying to fast more regularly, and I could tell you how many times I've failed. It's been a lot. I just, I'm greedy, and I like food, and I have a problem. But there we go. But when I was due to speak, I was wrestling with this and I had to remind myself again and again and again, it's grace. I'm saved by grace. I'm loved by grace. It doesn't matter. And I was shocked at how the religious mindset was creeping in again and again and again. Charles Swindle, a Christian writer, he says this, you can no more allow legalism to continue than you could permit a rattlesnake to slip into your house and hide. Whenever you find religious patterns of thought or things like that, you need to kill it dead. Because the problem with religion is it turns a friendship with God into a contract. You approach God as an employer. That's what goes on in our, in our first scene. Uh, if you like, the, the Pharisee comes to God to pray and he lists all of the things that he does do and he's proud of the things that he isn't and proud of the things he doesn't do. And he's basically kind of saying, God, I can come to you because I'm not like this guy. I've got things right. He's turned God into a boss and he's become an employer. And I don't know if you've ever tried being friends with someone who you feel like the whole time they're just trying to impress you. They're trying to tell you impressive things that make you go, wow, you're an impressive person. It's exhausting and you never feel like you get to know the person at all. Or if you've ever been that person that feels nervous around someone, you think, I must try to impress them. And you try to subtly list things that you've done that are impressive and you never tell them about the bad things you've done because you're trying to impress them. You've got to keep this mask on, this facade. You've got to keep up with the Joneses or whatever it is. It's exhausting. And often it just makes friendship very stale and conversation very rigid. Religion does that. It kills joy and intimacy with God and it kills the Christian life. And that's why when Paul writes to churches in the New Testament, he's furious when he sees signs of religiosity getting into the church. He says to the church in Galatia, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Or how could you let this happen? He's angry with them because he knows that that kind of pattern kills prayer. When um, our boys were born, like all of us, I suppose, they came out with the umbilical cord and we had to cut it. I didn't do it. It freaked me out too much. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> But we had to cut it. And I didn't know they did this. But they leave it. They leave it on there. They just leave your baby with this big, big bit of umbilical cord. This is pleasant, I know, Sunday morning. Um, and they, they leave it and then they clip it. And for a few weeks or months or years, the baby has heart, like its umbilical cord sticking out. It's a few days really, isn't it? Um, but it's clipped. And then one day you come to your baby to change their nappy and you go, oh, your umbilical cord's fallen off. Huh. It, it's died. Okay, fine. Nice. Get rid of that. Um, I know some people who keep their baby's umbilical cords in drawers to show them when they're getting married. It's horrible. Um, if you're one of those people, shame on you. <laughs> but um, 
But it does that because you cut off the blood supply to the rest of this umbilical cord and it dies. Religion is like that. It cuts you off from the life of God, the grace of God, the joy of God, the forgiveness of God. It turns your friendship with God into a contract and slowly you start to die spiritually. Uh, so Jesus uses the example of a, of a tree and, and a vine and branches, which is kind of less gross than an umbilical cord. And he says that he's the, he's the tree, the trunk, and we're the branches. We get our life by being connected to Jesus. Religion cuts off and cuts off that life. And so when we come to pray, we need to be careful that that spirit's not getting into us. We've got to check our gospel every time. Just check, am I, think, am I trusting in anything other than the grace of God and the goodness of God and the death and resurrection of Jesus? Am I trusting in anything else? And it's subtle, so we've got to be careful. Because we do it by accident, uh, without realizing it. Uh, when we were growing up, my mum bought, um, she bought some weed killer for our front lawn, our garden that she was very proud of. Trouble is, she bought gar- grass killer instead of weed killer. And she was applying it liberally and going, oh, this is good for me. I'm trying to improve the, how beautiful my lawn is. Within a few days, desert. Just death had overtaken that lawn. And she was rather embarrassed. And it was very amusing. And we mock her to this day. But religion does that. It turns your joy and life in God into desert and contractual agreements instead of loving friendship. So in the next 15 minutes, let's look positively then at what we can do to avoid the religiosity that can creep into life. And we're going to go for the, uh, the first scene. Um, you see the tax collector approaching God, and Jesus says, well, he leaves justified. So we go, okay, well, let's look at this guy. What's he doing right? Often this parable is called the, the parable of the self-righteous uh, and, the, and, the, and the tax collector. But I prefer the title. This is the, the parable of the righteous rebel. He comes to God groveling because he knows he needs God. When you think tax collector, think traitor because that's what they were in Jesus' day. And he knows it. He knows his need. He's desperate. He's immoral. He's helpless. But he's praying. And he's the only one that's praying. Jesus says the other guy's not even praying. In the Christian life, we need to understand something. Maturity doesn't equal independence or togetherness. Maturity equals an increasing awareness of our helplessness and our dependency on God. If you've ever come across someone who you go, oh, they're a real prayer warrior, or they look like they really know God, it's often not because they're really proud and kind of got it together. It's because they're aware of their need and their great need of God. The truth is that helplessness is healthy for us. That feeling of helplessness is okay. It's good to live with. The truth is, I pray most when I'm preaching, (laughs) or I pray most when we're financially tight, or when there's problems in the family, or when I don't understand things. It drives me to my knees, and we need all of us to learn to be helpless again, to learn to take our masks off, because when you do it with God, you can do it with others. And if you want to get better at relating to people around you, being honest and loving and kind, well, it starts with your view of God and the way you approach Him. Children learn to live with helplessness, right? They can't do anything. Uh, They need help to fetch the biscuits out of the cupboard or to have their shoelaces tidied or to tied or to have a drink or they need help with everything. But as we grow, we get competent, we get able. But in the Christian life, it works the other way around. See, at first, when I became a Christian, I was aware of some of my sin. And I was aware of Jesus' ability to forgive me. 
And so I, I realized I needed him. I needed him a little bit because I thought I only had a little bit of sin. Since getting married, I've realized I've got a lot more sin than I realized I had. And as a result, I realized oh, I need more of Jesus' forgiveness. And, and then we had children, and suddenly I'm aware, oh my goodness, this is, these boys are in trouble because their dad's a real sinner, and I need a lot of help. And what that does, it makes me ask for more forgiveness. And I think, well, that's a path of maturity, getting to, to know God. The people that I know most who pray the most and love God the most are also the people who've been through the hardest times in life because they've realized, they've come to the end of themselves and realized, I need God. What we see is that dependency is the heartbeat of prayer. Paul Miller in his book says this, a needy heart is a dependent heart. Dependency is the heartbeat of prayer. At Jesus' first miracle, the wedding at Cana in Galilee, uh, where he turns water into wine, before that instance, Mary, his mother, comes to him and she says this, they've run out of wine. And one writer says, that right there is the essence of prayer. Or another writer puts it like this, prayer is an expression of who we are. We are a living incompleteness. We are a gap, an emptiness that calls for fulfillment. Do you need God? You'll pray as much as you think you do. The truth is we are helpless, whether we know it or not, right? That we're only able to control a minuscule amount of events that go on in our lives. You think every day your brain's processing, are processing billions of pieces of information that control your actions and your thought. In the next hour alone, your body will shed 600,000 skin cells and then recreate 600,000 skin cells. Every minute, your heart pumps an average of six liters of blood around your body and every single second two million red blood cells return to your bone marrow to die and are replaced by another two million red blood cells. Now one day you sometimes feel tired but you, are, you have no control over what goes on and anyone who's done any amount of study or awareness of how complex the brain is you know that the, for us to be Mentally healthy, we need all of the right chemical balances to be almost exactly fine-tuned for life to exist and for us to be happy and content. As soon as one of them goes out of balance, we experience all kinds of health problems. You're not in control of that. Actually, sometimes it's, it's when people realize their helplessness that they break down or they go into fe- like a loss of control and a, a trouble with life and things kind of go all haywire. The truth is you've never been in control of your life and there's so little about your life you can control. All of us need to be driven to our knees. That's what it does. And So turn your helplessness into conversation with God. He is a person after all, someone that we can talk to. But it's not just that we're completely helpless, you'll be pleased to know. You see, if it stayed in this position of utter helplessness, You'd be forgiven for praying like a groveling enemy. Oh God, please have mercy on me, a sinner like the tax collector. But it doesn't end there. Because Jesus, in the very next scene that Luke records for us, he wants to impress something else on us as well. Not only are you completely helpless, you are also utterly accepted. You are utterly accepted. See, religion and the religious attitude wants to keep you away from God. It wants you to do something to impress God. It wants to keep you out in the cold, whereas Jesus, the good shepherd, wants to bring you into the fold. He wants to care for you. He wants to lead you. He wants to love you from a position of utter acceptance. 
Those two things, when you, when you grasp them, they can go together beautifully. You're utterly helpless, but completely accepted. Completely helpless, utterly accepted. See, in contrast to the religious people, we read about the children. Actually, we read about the mothers, don't we, trying to bring their kids to Jesus. I love that kind of spirit of the mother that just says, bless my son, bless my son, bless my daughter, bless my child. Because Jesus just says, okay, the children, let them come to me because to them belongs the kingdom of heaven. What's he saying? That we, like past the age of 11, we've got no hope? No, he's not saying that. You look at children and the way they engage with their parents or engage with people of authority and we can learn lots of things. So, so I, work, um, I work at home often in our, our like shed, insulated shed in the garden, which is my sanctuary. Um, and we call it a chalet to make it sound posh. It's just a shed with, with a desk. And um, when I'm working from home, we have to tell the, the boys, Daddy's working in the shed. Don't disturb him. He's, you know, I, it takes me a long time to get into a train of thought. So if they disturb me, I lose it completely. Um, but... But it's very hard to impress that upon them because their dad's home. The, the, the phrase daddy's working really doesn't mean as much as daddy's home. And so often I'll, I'll get a knock on the lounge window to get my attention. And just the other day when I was, when I was writing this, um, I was writing about, you know, must be children before God. And then I got this knock on the lounge window and, and Zach, my one-year-old, was just there spinning around, just wanting to get my attention and waving and blowing kisses. And I thought, oh, that's nice. I'm trying to work. So... <laughs> Or they'll come out, or they'll, if I've got my window open, they'll pick up stones and drop the stones in. They'll, they'll open the door and try to come in. Riley, our three-year-old, now brings his books to try to study with me. You know, so I'll be, I'll be reading Bob the Builder while he's going through church history stuff. Um, because they want to be with their dad. See, children just love to be loved, and they love to be with someone who they know loves them. Your Father in heaven loves you. And Jesus says, We're to be like children when we come to pray. We're to love being with God. We're to come to him often. If you're a Christian, Paul says in in the book of Romans that there is no condemnation towards you now. What that means is God is not angry with you. Oh, Christians, we need to have that drummed into us. God is not angry with you. Oh yeah, but you don't know what I did. Doesn't matter. His favor over you is not dependent on what you've done. It's dependent on what Jesus has done. Oh, but if only you saw what I, if you were there when I said this or how I didn't do that, or if you knew what I was like, he's not angry with you anymore. He's a father who loves you. That is shocking. It is revolutionizing and it changed the world when people got hold of Jesus' teaching on this. Jesus was very keen to kind of drum this into people because it it was shocking for Jesus to turn up and suddenly start talking about the holy God, Yahweh, the eternal one as dad. That was shocking. So Jesus had to explain how they should relate to God and why that is. And, you know, the whole Sermon on the Mount, much of that is about our Father God, how he feels about us. Jesus said that God has numbered the number of hairs on your head, which I know for some of you is less of a challenge than others now, the older some of us men get. Us, see, I say us. um, But he's numbered the number of hairs on your head. Now we love our kids. We do what other parents do. We sing the songs about their fingers and toes. We count their toes. I love them. I'm never going to count the hairs on their head, just being honest. There's a limit of my love. (laughs) And you'd like to think I've got better things to do with my time. But God... It's not that he hasn't got better things to do with his time. So Jesus says he loves you so much that he's numbered the hairs of hairs, hairs on your hair. That. 
Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow because it will worry about itself. Do you not know how God cares for the sparrows and the birds and all of these things? And he says, you are more valuable than many sparrows, which is the highest compliment anyone could ever be paid. Try that. If you're a single guy or girl and you're, you know, you're wanting to impress someone, oh, you're more valuable than many sparrows to me. Just see how much that blesses them. But that's what Jesus does. He's trying to impress upon us. God is not angry with you. God loves you. If you're in Christ, you can come utterly accepted. See, again, religion requires that we clean up our act before we come to God. We answer questions, or we don't swear when we pray. We don't tell God how we really feel. We keep it to ourselves. The best prayer times I've ever had have also been the hardest times in my life. Where I've just walked around a local park and just said, God, I don't really like you at the moment. I don't know what you're doing, God. What's your problem, God? And if you think there's a problem with that, read the Psalms. They're full of it. Full of those kind of wrestlings with things. And Jesus told this story, the famous story about the lost son, right? Who went to his, his dad and said, I don't want to wait till you die. Give me my inheritance now. Took all of his money. Off he went. Spent it. Squandered it. Came to the end of himself. No money left. And he says to himself, the servants in my father's house eat better than I do. Huh. I'm going to go back to my father and ask to be a servant. I'll do that. Good idea, he thinks. Goes back home. At the beginning of the story, the, lost, the son is a selfish man. Give me my stuff. At the end of the story, just there, he's still selfish. His desire to come home is that, oh, they eat better than I do. Oh, he's not thinking about his father. He doesn't think about what he's done to his dad and how he's shamed the family. He doesn't think about that. He's still selfish. The only difference is now he's hungry and now he's cold and he needs to go home. So how does the father treat him when he comes home? You selfish son. And your motive in coming home is still selfish. No, he doesn't. The father sees him and runs to meet him, Right? embraces him, puts a, a, a cloak on him, a robe on him, throws a party for him, tells the town, he's home. This son who shamed us is home. He's back. Come and celebrate. Again, the religious spirit would say, don't be selfish when you pray. Don't ask for too many things for yourself. Jesus says, he's your dad. Come to him and ask him for anything. So Jesus at his baptism uh, you'll know the story well. The, uh, when he was baptized, the heavens were open and a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, my beloved son whom I love. And, um, and one writer, a guy called Henry Nouwen, uh, this beautiful quote I came across, he says this, I think his whole life, that's Jesus, is continually claiming that identity in the midst of everything. There are times in which he's praised, times when he is despised or rejected, but he keeps saying, Others will leave me alone, but my Father will not leave me alone. I'm the beloved Son of God. I am the hope found in that identity. Prayer, then, is listening to that voice, to the one who calls you the beloved. It is constantly to go back to that truth of who we are and claim it for ourselves. You are not what you do. You are not what someone else has done to you. You're not what you have. You're not how impressive you are. There's nothing wrong with success. There's nothing wrong with popularity. There's nothing wrong with power and authority in in that sense. But your spiritual identity, who you really are, is not rooted in the things of this world. It's rooted in who you are in God. It's rooted in the fact that you are the beloved son, beloved 
daughter of God. You needn't wear any mask. You needn't pretend to have anything together. When you pray, you needn't get the words right. You needn't stick to a pattern. You needn't follow a formula. You needn't be regular. You're a son. You're a daughter. That's who you are. See, God sought you out, forgives you, and invites you to know him. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said, religion is man searching for God. Christianity is God seeking man. It's the big difference between us and other faiths. God sought you out. Jesus could sum up his mission in one phrase. He said, I've come to seek and to save the lost. Are you lost? Oh no, I'm together. I come to church. I was lost. Now I'm fine. You're lost. We always are. We're found in him, right? So, so Paul writes to one of the worst churches in history um, where there's just all kinds of awful things going on. And he says, consider what you were, right? Before you were called. You might as well say, consider what you are now. But consider what you were. None of you were of noble birth or of in particular wise standing or intelligence. You weren't overly well respected, God chose the, sh- the shameful things of this world to shame the proud. He chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. The trouble is, when, we, when we're not Christians, we read that and go, oh, yes, yes. And when we're, that's good, God chose me even though I'm, I'm not impressive. And then we become Christians and we, we kind of, we know we're not impressive because we're just so aware of our sin, at least I am. Uh, but the, the tendency is that as we grow as Christians, we go, I've got it together now. I can play guitar and lead worship. I can... I don't know, lead Bible studies well now. I can pray well now. I can fast without eating McDonald's. I'm better than the pastor. We have to be okay with the identity that we are only something as much as we're children of his. And knowing that changes everything. It becomes possible now to be needy, to be dependent, not as a confirmation of uh, our ultimate fear that we're worthless, but as a chance for blessing. And physical, mental, or emotional pain as an accepted child is a radically different experience than it was before. You see, before, even a small burden perceived as a sign of our worthlessness can lead us into deep depression, even to the point of suicide, because I'm nothing, I'm, I've got nothing, no, I'm, I'm not impressive, or I failed, or I, I didn't do as well as I'd like to have done, or I didn't get the job, or I tried this and it, it fell far short. <laughs> But when you know you're loved, when you know you're a child of God, when you know he loves you, it changes how you experience even failure. I mean, James can write to a church and say, consider it pure joy when you experience trials of many kinds. You're like, joy and trials? What are you talking about? I'm not going to laugh at what the doctor just said. He's not saying laugh at those things. He's saying "You you can find a joy in this because you're loved. You always will be loved. And there is always hope. And he's always with you. You see, what seemed intolerable becomes a challenge. What seemed a reason for depression becomes a source now of purification. And what seemed punishment now becomes a gentle pruning. What seemed rejection becomes a way of deeper fellowship with God. Let me close just by summing up then. Religious thinking kills prayer. But knowing your need of God and his love of you empowers it. Knowing that you are utterly accepted and completely helpless is the life source of a good prayer life. And when we say prayer life, we mean getting to know God. 
And imagine how your life would be changed if you really took hold of these truths. And like Henry Nouwen said Jesus did, constantly reminded yourself of those two things. I'm helpless, but I'm accepted. I'm helpless. Imagine how your life would be changed. Imagine how you'd be freer to remove masks around people. You'd be more content with trials because you know, well, it's not coming to bring me down. I know that I'm loved by God. Imagine how your your friendship circles could be changed by that because you're not having to compete or impress or outdo one another now with having the latest this or being the best at that. Instead, you go, well, we're all helpless. We're all loved. Let's just operate from that position. Imagine how your family could be changed. If all of you started to put that principle into practice that we're all helpless, we're all accepted, we pray, we bring things to God. Miller talks a lot about his family in this book and one of their children is severely disabled and uh, severely autistic as well. And uh, he tells a story at the beginning of the book about a time that his uh, youngest daughter, Ashley, uh, they were on a camping trip and she'd lost her contact lens. It had fallen on the grass in front of her and she was frantically trying to find it with her fingertips and see the contact lens. And Paul just came alongside her and said, what's wrong? What are you looking for? I've lost my contact lens. And he said, well, why don't we pray and ask the Father to help us? And when he said that, she burst into tears because she said, I've been praying for Kim to speak. That's their disabled daughter. I've been praying for her to speak and she still can't speak. What good does prayer do? And so what he did is he came alongside her, put his arm around her and he said, oh God, if there's ever a time we needed to know your fatherly love is now. And he said, they just prayed, Father, where's the contact lens? And then they looked down and there it was. They picked it up. I didn't take away the hurt and the pain that she was experiencing, didn't answer all the questions that she had, but it did remind her that God's a dad and he loves her and he's for her. Imagine a family soaked in that. Imagine how we could transform this town or people who don't come to church, how they would be impacted by a church that grasped this, grasped their utter helplessness and their utter acceptance. The church wouldn't be known as hypocritical and judgmental, it would be known as authentic and loving, joyful, because we know our impressiveness doesn't come from ourselves, it comes from God. I want us to respond this morning just by coming to our Father and worshipping Him, praying, delighting in Him, and celebrating His goodness to us. But if you're someone here who's not yet a Christian, uh, I would love to give you the opportunity to become a Christian and to pray, perhaps for the first time, and say, God, please forgive me, God, thank you that you accept me. I want to learn to follow you. You can do that during this song. You can do that in talking to a friend who brought you. Um, But as a church, let's go on this adventure of getting to know God more. And let's watch out for how religion can kill prayer. Let me pray. Oh, Father, our dad without limits, our Father in heaven, thank you that we needn't come to you when we've got it together. We can come to you just as we are. Uh, Jesus, you said, come to me, all who are heavy laden, all who are burdened, all who are tired, all who ramble at prayer, all who forget how to pray, all who haven't got it together, come to me and I'll give you rest. God, we bring our needs to you. We bring our heartaches, our why questions, stuff that we really wrestle with. God, we bring our thoughts to you that we would never tell anyone else because we're too scared of what they think of us. We bring that to you, Dad, and say, please help us. We love you, Father, and we thank you that you first loved us. Amen.